This is BioBusters, Professors Hanging Out Talking Science, episode number 35, recorded on February 10th, 2021. Hello, folks. You are listening to the podcast that takes you beyond the classroom and into the trenches of science. I'm Dr. Abi Abdallah, and I'm here with Dr. Fawner, Dr. Keller, and Dr. Lorenzo. How are we all doing? We're going to find out. I'm going to you in HD. This is pretty exciting. I'm kind of nervous about this, but we're going to find out. Oh, we're going to be okay. Rick, are, are you, you nervous? I've never been in... I've never been in HD before. This is kind of cool. I like this. We can so, please see half your face there, Wilson. <laughs> yes, yeah, your chair a little bit too high up. Are you are you sit, are you sitting on one of these chairs you could adjust up and down? There is no chair that adjusts up and down. I'm sitting There's in a chair no that has one static uh, uh, level. <laughs> this is it or it's nothing. We have booster seats at my house if you want one. <laughs> I don't know if I could fit in one anymore, but I'll I'll give it a shot. I'll try anything once. Mm. All right, so we have uh, Dr. Rick Lorenzo with us here. And, uh, you know, a few episodes back, he's uh, one of our regular listeners, and uh, he's always uh, guessing correctly uh, a lot of our games, uh, our game segment at the end. And um, But before we, we thought, you know, we talked to him about telehealth, telemedicine. We had an episode of, uh, on that if, uh, a few episodes back, and, you know, he offered to come talk to us, give us some insight on that because he's been doing that. But before we get to that, why don't we do uh, today's birthday? Sounds good to us. All right, let's do that. So uh, what do we got? We have February 10th, 1931, James Edward Maceo West, uh, African-American physicist, acoustical engineer, inventor. And uh, he's most famous for uh, co-inventing what's called the foil electric microphone. And uh, that microphone has pretty much uh, dominated most applications, notably uh, earpieces for uh, those who are hard of hearing. And um, uh, pretty much, uh, you know, uh, uh, is still active, I think, in terms of inventions and uh, as a professor as well. But uh, he received his uh, bachelor's degree in physics uh, from Temple University in uh, 57, 1957. Uh, he worked at Bell Labs uh, as an intern and then uh, as a summer intern while he was in college. And then uh, he got hired with them uh, uh, later. Uh, he worked with Gerhard uh, Sessler to uh, uh, do the electric microphone in 1968. And uh, I looked him up. Apparently, his name is on uh, 250 uh, patents uh, or so. And the uh, microphone is now pretty much standard in telephones, camcorders, uh, hearing aids. Uh, he's received a lot of uh, uh, awards uh, uh, throughout his life. And uh, he uh, currently is a professor in the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering uh, at Johns Hopkins. So, uh, yeah, shout out, shout out to him. And, uh, in his, uh, have you guys, what's the name of that movie? Um, where, uh, it, it portrays those, uh, like five or six, uh, African-American scientists at NASA that were like sort of, uh, crucial in doing some of the math for the, uh, uh, lunar called, uh, Hidden figures. Yeah. yeah, that one, that one. So he, uh, yeah, so he's related to one of them. He's either the son or the grandson of one of the women who worked on that, uh, on that mission. That was a really good movie. Yeah, yeah, I liked it. All right. Uh, anything else on, on that one? I, think I don't think we have any clarifications yeah. or anything at all, so we can jump right into the interview. All right. So uh, Rick, uh, well, hey, welcome to the BioBusters. We can, uh, at least I can finally put a face to the name. So, uh, uh, Anna, t- t- tell us about yourself, your background. Um, how do you go from LeCom to wherever you are now? And what do you do? Gotcha. Well, um, right now I'm currently a family medicine 
doctor down in Morganton, North Carolina. I actually practice in Lenore, North Carolina, which is about 15 miles north of where I live. Um, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, grew up in Michigan and lived there for what, 30 years until, um, finally going to LECOM for not only med school, but, uh, post-bac and did my master's there Had the, uh, the pleasure of working under Dr. Keller and, um, that's how one I, of I the got few to know are you sure uh, one of the few people who refer to it as pleasure well no i was gonna <laughs> ask i was gonna ask rick did you mean to say the word pleasure or something else i, I just want to clarify now, for i will our listeners. have you know that rick was my first graduate student and my first success story so take yeah. that one and make it feel awkward <laughs> honor so no, uh, he, were you a non-traditional student? Did you come into medical school a little bit later? Do you, because you said, what, you lived in Michigan for 30 years before LECOM? Yeah, definitely. I did my undergrad at uh, Michigan State. Uh, kind of took the roundabout way to get my, my degree that way. Um, and then kind of decided, I don't want to say kind of decided to go to med school, but definitely had a passion for medicine and um, kind of found a, a way into, into LECOM, not going to, not going to lie. And I just tried to figure out ways to get into med school. And when I talked with the administration at LECOM, they were always pretty receptive and they had the, the post back program, which was kind of starting in its infancy at that time. And that led to the master's program. And like I said, Dr. Dr. Keller and kind of took me under his wings and um, eventually got into the, what was the, uh, oh, what was it called? the um, primary scholars pathway at, at LECOM. So it was actually abbreviated med school and, you know, we finished up in three years. Um, and I kind of owe that to Dr. Keller. I'm not going to uh, lie and say he didn't take a part in it because I remember one, one day he sat me down in his office when I was working on my master's and he's like, what are you looking for in medicine? And I kind of described uh, talking with patients and, you know, the, the focus on preventative medicine and, um, he's like, well, wouldn't like, you know, family medicine or internal medicine. And that led me into the, the primary care scholars pathway and eventually where I'm at now. Um, as far as after LECOM, uh, we ended up in Morganton, North Carolina for residency. It's, I don't know if you guys are familiar with North Carolina, but it's the Western side of the state. It's kind of, we're in the, the foothills, if you want to call them foothills. Um, so is, is that what it's, so it's a little bit inland, right? Like, so if you wanted to go all the way to the Atlantic, is that like a few hours? It's about a, about a three and a half hour ride. Yeah. Okay. So it's, it's a decent ride to the, the ocean. But, um, if you're familiar with Asheville, uh, it's about 45 minutes from where I live. Okay. Charlotte's about an hour drive South. So Asheville is a like nice the, place. Uh, they've got a lot of, uh, Fun breweries there. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that last time I went through. <laughs> Actually, yeah. uh, D- Dave lives down there. You know, cousin Dave. Um, okay, all right. Helping cool. us with the app. Hey, and shout, he, out, shout out to Dave. Yeah, right. Hopefully, he listens if he's going to be working with us. That's a prerequisite. <laughs> and that area yeah, is so- beautiful down there. We, we've been going on family vacations that way for years. Well, until recently, but uh, just beautiful down in that area. Yeah. So, so you know why we, we decided to stay, we kind of fell in love with the area and, you know, if we wanted to, if we were just talking, said, if I, if I want to see snow, I can drive about an hour into the mountains during the winter time, or I can drive four hours to the beach. So it's, it's kind of a nice place to live. Cool. So uh, tell us a bit about uh, the pandemic and how has that affected your practice? Either negatively or positively, I guess. Um, it's it's affected a lot. Initially, basically, when everything was kind of hitting, we shut everything down in the outpatient world. We were trying to keep people out of offices. So we went from seeing anywhere from 16, 20 patients a day to next to none, just keeping Ooh. people out and trying to keep them safe. Um, and then it became, you know, how do we get people back in? Because we can't can't go on like this. So it was a lot of logistics as far as spacing patients out, um, you know, getting masks into the office to prevent spread, um, sanitizing uh, our office. I think had a cleaning company come in and sanitize the whole office. And we had to go over with um, our assistants, how, how to clean after a room. Cause you know, initially we were really, every time anybody was in a room, we had to wipe it down because that was the concern at that time was making sure nobody nobody got COVID. Um, you know, gradually it's, it's kind of returned to almost normal. Um, 
but it's it's had its lumps and bumps. We uh, we definitely have uh, worked with some telemedicine, good and bad. <laughs> um, but um, you know, we, we've definitely you, seen a lot of progress. Hey, Rick, can you can you expand on that? Because that's kind of where we're really interested is talking a bit about telemedicine, and that that's a great lead in. Uh, what what were the pros and cons of of telemedicine for you during this ordeal? Well, I mean, telemedicine is not new as far as, you know, it's been around for a while, um, but it was kind of new to us as, as family medicine docs. And, you know, traditionally you see your patient in the office, you talk with them, come up with a plan and they go home. Um, now it was, how do we see a patient without seeing a patient in the office? Um, the, I think the the main thing that was a problem initially was the platform. So um, there was a built-in platform into our health record that I didn't even know about. Um, so it was working with that and working out some of the kinks. Um, so, you know, it, it, and then there was, um, connection issues. And, um, so I, I don't know how familiar you guys are, or what you guys do with your doctors, but you know, we have, it's called, um, Oh, I'm drawing a blank. It's like my health or something like that. You know, the, the web page that you go to, you can look at your lab work and your last note from your doctor. And that's how people would access their telehealth but not everybody had a computer and not everybody had an email account to get in it. And so we had to find other ways to work with telehealth. Um, and are you guys familiar with doximetry at all or? I've heard I of it, but it. not a lot of details. Yeah. Or, so I don't know a lot about it. Yeah. Doximetry is kind of like a, a platform for physicians for the most part, or, um, you know, it's, it's a way that it not only is it ways to kind of communicate as far as new recommendations, but um, it also has a platform to make and receive like phone calls. So if I wanted to call a patient from my personal cell phone, I can open up on Dexymetry and it kind of cloaks my phone and says I'm calling from the office, for instance. Um, but they, but they also have a built in, it's basically FaceTime on Dexymetry, but it's a way to actually kind of do FaceTime with patients if they don't have like the, the, my health or the, my chart, whatever it's called to work on the computer for telehealth. Um, is it a perfect system? No, but it's better than nothing. Yep. Um, you know, the, the system I, we personally have, um, probably not supposed to say names, but we use Epic in my, my healthcare system and the, the system to do telehealth visits, uh, video visits at least is, is pretty good. If you have good connectivity, if you don't have good connectivity, it, it's really cumbersome. But the nice thing about it is, I can see the patient. They can see me. I can share my screen. So if I want to show them labs and say, Hey, this is, you know, here's your cholesterol from before. Here's what we're working on. Um, and that's a nice feature. If I want to show them x-rays and be like, Oh, here's where your, your break is and show them that, that that's nice. Um, but you know, it's, it's definitely got a lot of memory use, I guess. So if you sure. don't have the capability it can be cumbersome. So Rick, in terms of efficiency, have you found that maybe this is going to be a gateway to allow more hesitant patients to maybe be more willing to communicate more easily with you via telemedicine rather than coming into the office or what efficiency wise, where do you see this going in the future? Hopefully once the pandemic is long gone. I, <laughs> I definitely um, see it being a part and it, it's definitely been a, a gateway for some patients. I mean, I've found, um, especially with the, the younger generation, the, the late teens, early twenties, they're all involved in their technology. Um, and they're not willing to disclose stuff in person, but on telehealth visits. So like my college kids, I'll have some, some visits with them. They're disclosing stuff that they didn't disclose in the appointment. So I think since they're comfortable with it, they, they're actually, disclosing more and allows us to actually improve the way we deliver medicine in some instances, I think. So I was going to ask, I think it goes along with that. Do you see the, maybe as we go back to normality, is that going to replace certain things? Uh, do you see telemedicine replacing any, you know, anything that you did before the, the pandemic, such as what you just said? I mean, if you have, if you have, you know, young adults reaching out to you in a different modality where they aren't going to do it in the office. Is that something that you want to pursue and maybe include more in your practice or as, as, as an additional means of communication? Oh, oh, definitely. Um, I, I don't foresee it going away by any means. Um, so okay. I think that, that 
with, with those certain people. Yes. You know, certain people, interesting. No. um, you know, but definitely that 20 to 30 year olds have been very receptive towards it. Um, you know, even some of the, the older adults, I have people that are 75, 80 that <laughs> work it better than my, my mom, even probably I can do it. <laughs> so, so, uh, what, so what do you do and say like between visits in terms of, like, do you have patients like, uh, take their own blood pressure at home, do regular temperature checks? Like, so like, uh, like how do you do for like vitals and things like that? Uh, yeah, definitely. A lot of people have, I mean, there's easy access to blood pressure cuffs. Um, every, well, most people have a thermometer now. Um, now that we were checking our temperature with COVID. So <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, we definitely can get those vitals. And actually I've been part of uh, the committee with um, the, the healthcare system that I work with trying to incorporate some of these, these ways that we can do vital signs in the home. Um, and I think there's even been platforms like proposed where if you can show something on a screen and kind of assess like their vision even. Um, so that's like an interesting concept mm. kind of moving forward. But um, yeah, so you can do basic vital signs. Um, you know, there's definitely a lot of stuff as far as anxiety and depression, especially with everything going on. We can do those screening measures over the phone. Um, we've, we've worked on ways to even do like preventative measures. So, um, you know, with, um, uh, with Chadwick Bozeman, uh, you know, the Black Panther and his uh, battle with colon cancer, it's, it's brought to, you know, how do we screen people without getting them in the office? And um, I'm sure you've seen the commercials for like Cologuard. And so we've been talking things like that, you know, with Cologuard, long story short, we can get them signed up for that. They don't have to come to the office. It gets right. mailed to their house and they're screening for colon cancer that way. So yeah, yeah. Um, no, that's interesting. Just, just different ways to, to deliver medicine without having to get the patients into the office and keeping people safe. It's well, I mean, that saves you time. Right. It saves, <laughs> and it saves them anxiety and time. Right. Yes. You know, and, and, and like I say, it's just, it, I guess it's not that amazing, but just, you know, the, the fact that somebody would be, you know, more inclined to tell you something over a phone or a, you know, a, a d electronic device than just, you know, to your face. You know, I don't know if it's the impersonality, you know, the, the, the fact that it's more impersonal, I, I don't know, but whatever works is what we need to do. Exactly. Well, I mean, speaking it, to it, that. Sorry, go ahead. If it helps the outcomes of your yeah. patients, then then why not? Exactly. And speaking to that, Rick, I'm glad you brought that up. We touched on kind of the pandemic's effect on mental health and I don't know, rates of anxiety, depression, different things like that. Have you seen patients in your practice been more willing to share their concerns about anxiety and you having to use those screening measures more since the beginning of the pandemic or how has that been affected? Um, well, we've always had a, a high screening for everybody. So pretty much anybody that came into the office was getting screened. Um, it was, it was part of our, you know, we have measures that we try to focus on and that was one of the ones that we've been focusing on. So that don't think changed much there. I don't know if people are more willing or people are being told something's going on. So a lot of times it's, you know, my wife made me come in says I'm not acting right. And, you know, we find out they're, they're stressed with the pandemic and, yeah. Um, you know, whether it's no job or what am I doing or, I mean, the, the, you know, I, I can't get out, you know, I can't go to the bar and watch the game. I can't go to the gym and work out. Um, I've had all the above as, as reasons why. And, you know, it's, it's definitely hit everybody. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. And, um, but yeah, I, I know it's, it's definitely people have come forward. Like I said, I don't know if it's more you need to go see somebody or um, that, you know, people realizing that I, I need to do something and return to normal or whatever we want to call normal. Do you ever think we're going to go back to normal in your opinion? Do you, do you think we should, uh, you know, when do you envision that happening? If at all? Um, you know, I, I knew this question was coming up and I don't know if we're, I don't know when's the right time, but I would say I would love to see somewhere close. Do I envision, you know, September, 2019 normal? No, I, I think things have changed forever. I just hope that they can return something similar. Um, 
that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before many times. Uh, I mean, I, I think we all are on the same page that coronavirus is here to stay. Uh, it's probably going to become a, a winter, you know, a winter virus that's not going anywhere. It's not just Corona, though. I mean, we, I, I, I don't know. I, I envision there's nothing wrong with the mask. We can get people to wear it when they're out. You know, when you go, when you're, when you're at your house, when you're at your eating at your restaurant, fine, take it off when you're doing your thing. But, you know, when you're around big groups of people that you don't know, that's how these things are getting transmitted. And it sure has made a huge impact, not just on, on coronavirus, but on the cold, on, you know, a lot of these respiratory viruses. And it's, it's just a good preventative technique. I mean, it's going to save billions of dollars if people still wear masks. Yeah. I, I was going to ask, Rick, uh, have you seen less cases of the flu and the cold uh, this year? Um, colds, we still have flu. I think we have had maybe one or two cases. Me personally, we've had more in the office, but definitely both have been on a decline. Um, now, the, the caveat I have to that is that we are still screening patients and anybody that doesn't have a negative COVID test in the past week with any respiratory or GI systems, typically we're sending to, we have a, a respiratory diagnostic center where they're swabbing people for COVID. So we're also not letting those people into the office. So I don't know sure, how much sure. of that's playing into it right, too. Right, sure. right. Yeah, you know what? I, I think moving forward, maybe, I, I don't know. Like, so if you look at like Southeast Asian cultures, they wear masks in the winter anyway, all the time, whether there's a pandemic or not, right? And they see, uh, 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 they don't see as high numbers as we do in terms of respiratory uh, sort of yeah. flu, flu viruses, things like that. So, I mean, personally, I'm a, I would advocate for mask wearing during flu season. I mean, obviously, you know, not like a federal or state mandate, but, uh, you know, personal choice for protection, I guess, you know. But we are far away from that. We're still having to deal with coronavirus. Uh, yeah. Speaking of which, uh, in terms of the vaccine effort where you are, where, where, where are you guys in terms of vaccine effort? Have you, have you started vaccinating? Yeah, we um, started vaccinating pretty much the week it was approved. Um, we started with the, the healthcare workers. Um, so we started with uh, the nurses, the especially the ER doctors, the hospitalists all got kind of on the list first. Um, the the hospital I work for has been pretty pretty good and pretty um, a good. I guess good um, showing or whatever you want to call it. Um, but they had within the first week, they had a, a vaccine clinic set up and we're still doing it. Um, you know, they, you have to call and make an appointments. Um, they're pretty much seeing just people that are patients of the hospital. So if you go to a outside facility, because there's, there's different hospital systems that are, you know, close by, but if you're a, a patient at one of our outpatient practices, you can schedule an appointment. If you're in, was it 1A, 1B? So pretty much anybody 65 or above can schedule a vaccine. Um, I think we're up to like 500 vaccines a day in just our little hospital system, which is pretty small. Uh, the health department is also vaccinating. Um, as far as North Carolina, I know they just approved, I guess Walgreens is starting Friday with um, appointments for, I think it's the, the Moderna vaccine. So We've ramped up, um, you know, now it just becomes getting needles into arms. Um, right, right. <laughs> Have you seen a lot of hesitancy with, you know, patients in terms of the vaccine or any people who are outright anti-vaxxers? We've talked about anti-vaxxers a lot on this on this podcast. And, and how do you deal with that? How, how do you manage a patient's fears or hesitancy about getting the vaccine? Um, I mean, obviously there's, there's hesitancy with any vaccine and especially with one that came out this quickly. Um, I've had a lot of people that have been eager to get it and some people not so eager. Um, I, I guess my tactic personally is to educate and try to answer any questions they may have. I'm no vaccine expert by any means, um, but just definitely a lot of reassurance that, you know, this, the technology is not, was not started, you know, this past year, the technology has been around for a little while. They just finally used it for a virus. Right. Um, you know, and then, so 
reassuring them that it's not brand new, reassuring that it did, you know, go through all the testing. Um, and there's, you know, there's really minimal side effects. Yeah. You're going to hear about the bad cases of anaphylaxis. Um, but that's very rare. Um, you know, when it comes to certain people having bad side effects, um, I guess I don't know what you guys have run across, but my personal experience has been anybody that got the vaccine after possible exposure to COVID has the worst side effects. And I don't know if it's just, you know, immune related to that person's body and how they're going to react anyways, but those seem to be the ones that are more um, likely to have a stronger reaction, if you would. But I can't, can't make everybody vaccinate and, you know, just kind of reassuring that it's gonna, it's gotta run its course and you can, you know, we're either going to have to all be exposed to it or get vaccinated. And right. to me, a vaccine is a whole lot nicer than <laughs> a ventilator, you know? <laughs> right, yep. right. Right. Uh, do you think, uh, what do you guys think? So those, so I've, I've also read those reports about, uh, people who have had COVID when they get the vaccine, they've had worse side effects. You think it's immune complex? Possibly. Of course. But I mean, that, that's few and far between, you know, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I've, I've talked to some people, you know, that, oh, the second shot's worse than the first shot. And, you know, I've, I, I've felt like I had the flu. Well, those are good things. I mean, that's, that's what you want. You want your immune response to respond because if it doesn't, then it's all for naught, you know? Right, so, right. but, but nobody, I haven't heard anybody that I know personally having the anaphylaxis, um, you know, that's, that's not that common. So just like with any, anything you're putting into your body, you take a risk. You take a risk when you eat McDonald's, right? You take a risk. Probably right? a bigger risk than the vaccine. <laughs> Probably. You take a risk when you're drinking water in Flint, Michigan. My point is, you know, there's hey. always a risk with something. All right. Sorry. That was for you, Rick. Uh, but there's always a risk. So is there a risk? Yeah. Is it minor? Yes. I mean, yeah, this of course is, it's mine. I mean, anaphylaxis cases less than a dozen or so, and we vaccinated over 10 million people. I mean, Tevin, and look at how many zombies we've had. <laughs> right? Only, so only point, about five like, or six, right? At least five or six, right? So, you know, the end of the world is not coming with the vaccine. It clearly works. Our body's able to process it. You know, nobody's been intentionally exposed to COVID after it. I, you know, maybe that's something we need to do. Um, yeah, good luck with that. You know, I mean, that would just close the loop. It doesn't really protect us. Well, know, I think we, a lot think, of the, yes. a lot of the hesitancy fear comes from similar to what Rick was saying. Um, just not m- miseducation, but maybe misinformation and an overall lack of education and a lack of awareness that this was tested, you know, in how many thousands of people before it went became distributed manufactured or became manufactured and distributed like it has been tested for the last few months yes it was very quick but that doesn't mean you know any corners were cut or anything like that this has been tested and very mild minimal side effects were observed right most people i know want the vaccine the Mm -hmm. ones that don't are either crazy sorry or or <laughs> politicizing it on both sides of the aisle it doesn't need that this isn't something that should have any politics associated with it yeah on the other side it is what it is listen to the scientists listen to your doctors listen to dr lorenzo and get your vaccine that's yeah. right rick approved yeah. I think I think part of the problem is there's so much misinformation out there right like you google anything these days and you'll get thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of websites within seconds. And if you don't know which sources to trust, it can become really tricky on what information you're getting, right? And uh, there's just a lot out there. I agree. Yep. Just like everything else. True. True. Yeah. Okay. So um, any other questions for Rick? Uh, Rick, uh, thanks for talking with us. Well, I'm, I'm happy to, to to be here. Um, I don't know if I enlightened too much, but <laughs> well, that's exactly that was what great. we were hoping for. Absolutely. And I'm sure we're going to be having more discussions about this, future discussions on telemedicine and 
as the pandemic changes and evolves, I think I'm not going to speak for everybody, but for myself, we'd love to have you back on in the future as a, maybe a regular guest. I'd be happy to. Yeah. Anytime you want answering those questions. Cause that's right. Yeah. We love, we love reading. Rick's got a hundred percent perfect score. Uh, I think I missed one or two. After (laughs) medical school, I didn't think that was possible, but yes, a hundred percent. So Rick, I'm proud of you. You're doing good down there. Do good things. Keep it up. We're really, we're really excited to have you on. So thank you. Well, well, hopefully after all is done, maybe you can come come down here camping again and enjoy the the mountains. Well, we're, we're looking into it right now, actually. Yeah. If we, if the restrictions are lifted, we're, we're going on a vacation. I think. Yeah. I think we all need a vacation after this Don't pandemic. We? Don't we all need a vacation. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, all right. So, all right. well, Hey, fantastic. Thanks for joining us, Rick. And, uh, uh, you ever want to come back on and, uh, talk to us about anything, uh, medical related. Happy to have you. I'm happy to, happy to, happy to join. All right, cool. All right. All right. Well, thanks for, uh, thanks for coming. Uh, thank you. We're going to keep going. So you're going to have to, uh, log out on your own there. (laughs) (laughs) What else are you guys talking about? I might grab some food and listen in. (laughs) Hey, you're welcome. Uh, you're welcome to do that. We were just going to talk about, uh, COVID variants. Oh, COVID. We're talking about COVID. (laughs) Even more. (laughs) Oh, such a surprise. We've got a COVID variants to talk about and, uh, just some updates on some vaccine studies and vaccines. And I think that's it. Uh, not, not a big episode today. Well, what are these sure. COVID variants? I, I, you know, I've heard a lot about them. I'm confused. There's England, there's, there's South Africa. There's what, I mean, what's going on. So uh, one, one of the things that I think we need to emphasize is variant versus strain. And uh, if, if you read, if you read some of the, uh, if you read some of the news media, right? If you re- if you read some of the reports, uh, sometimes they're referring to it as a strain. And and for us, from terms of sort of a biological virology perspective, a variant is a, 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 a virus that has had a change in its genetic code, so slightly Minor, different. Usually, a couple of mutations that have a change, maybe in the spike protein or something like that, right? Sure. Uh, and a strain is something that has a convincing change in biological activity. You're Which usually makes it more virulent too. Right. Yeah. You're right. looking, you're looking at a virus with a different set of biological activity. So I think well, also when so we, how would you measure that or how would you define convincing increased infectivity, increased virulence, increased ability to get into the cell? No, uh, what three. do you mean by that? Okay. Those, absolutely. I mean, yeah, uh, I, I, yeah, I would say yes, but I also, so, so right now, if you look at some of these variants, and we'll talk about a paper that I uh, found on a bioarchive, right? It, it just got posted like 10 days ago, maybe 26th of January, from David Ho's lab. I don't know if you guys know David Ho, a big HIV virologist. Uh, I think he's at Harvard now. So they were looking at these uh, so-called variants from uh, the UK and uh, the South African one. So uh, the UK one is uh, now called B1117 and the uh, SARS-CoV variant, that's the South African one, is B1351. And uh, those uh, refer to... uh, uh, Fawner had, had looked more, more up on those, so he'll, he'll tell us more about those. But they, they refer to sort of genetic changes. Uh, and in most cases, a, sure. sing, uh, a single deletion in one of them in, in part of the protein for, the, for, for one of them for the spike, et cetera. But uh, their lab looked at uh, basically how much more or less antibody do you need to have a neutralizing effect, right? So for the... As uh, a uh, UK version, they found that you pretty much need uh, roughly threefold, so three times more antibody uh, from convalescent plasma. So people who have had the virus recovered from it. So if I take their antibody and use it, right, to try to neutralize these variants, I need three times more to neutralize the UK variant. 
Okay. If I look at uh, uh, antibody from uh, people who have received the vaccine, you would need twice as much antibody for the UK variant to have the same neutralizing effect for the regular coronavirus right now, right? For the South African one, the numbers change a little bit more. So for the South African strain, uh, not strain, variant, see, I'm doing it myself. For the South African variant, you need anywhere between 11 to 33 fold in terms of convalescent plasma to have the same neutralizing effect. And uh, for uh, serum from vaccine recipients, they found that to be around six and a half to eight fold more. So the consensus right now is in, in sort of the virology world is uh, things are not fall. The sky is not falling yet, especially if you receive the vaccine, you're still protected because what they're saying is, and Moderna saying that too, from their studies, they show even though uh, you need uh, way more antibody to have the same neutralizing effect, you're still not at the level where you're not protected, right? So it it will have to be way more than the eightfold or so increase in dose, the antibody titer needed uh, before you stop having effective neutralizing activity. So, so far, it's still okay. So so the vaccines are are causing people to make a lot more antibody than, than needed you, than needed so that they're still protected against the strain and the new variant. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Even though you need, say, in one case, uh, almost eight times as much antibody to have the same neutralizing effect. But it turns out you're making way more anyway than than you need with some of these vaccines. So that's good. So news, would I you think. call that that whatever eightfold increase, multifold increase in needing you know, that convalescent plasma, would that be an increased convincing change in biological activity, in your opinion? No. I'm trying to separate between uh, variant and yeah. strain based yeah. on like the virologist definition. Sure. Uh, I, I would say listeners and for myself, not being an immunologist, a trained immunologist, I hear you need however many more times, you know, of this plasma Mm-hmm. And that to me sounds, okay, that sounds significant. Uh, what about on your end? The biological activity of the virus hasn't changed. It still infects. As far in as the we, same, okay. Right. It still infects in the same way, replicates in the same way. Mm-hmm. Output of new virion particles hasn't changed, et cetera, causing the same disease. Okay. Right. So there, I, that's uh, how that sort of biological activity is defined. And for from thus far, correct me if I'm wrong, but there still is kind of very little published research and studies investigating the specific changes the in biological activity on the variants, correct? Yeah. I yeah, absolutely. And I well, want to caution that that, too. that data from this paper is still not peer reviewed, okay. right? This is bioarchive. But right. It is from David Ho's lab. I, I, I mean, I'm not saying I, it is trustworthy. I, yes. It still needs to be peer reviewed, but I mean, as with everything. Yep. Exactly. Okay. But, you know, uh, just these viruses being, you know, slightly more infectious per se or slightly more fit doesn't really matter with non vaccine efforts in terms and of mask, mask wearing, uh, social distancing, all that kind of stuff. Doesn't matter how much more fit the virus is if we're doing those right, right? And practicing caution and still doing these mitigation efforts, we should still be okay. But therein lies the key and the rub. If we're not masking, social distancing, staying away from each other for this period of time, well, that's why, what, a few weeks ago, the UK had to go under a, a new lockdown because of this UK strain, or I'm sorry, this UK variant, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but it looks like they may not have to i mean it's more infectious it's not more lethal mm-hmm. yeah right exactly and that's what it's specifically I think that, if they're getting the vaccine and i think that's what's important i mean we need the vaccine yes this i think the most uh, the scariest part about this is the fact that this uk variant was able to accumulate so many mutations and changes in its genome over the last year, right? About 30 to 35 changes over the past year in the UK variant. What is it called? B117. 
Right. But like you guys said, okay, maybe more easily transmitted, but not more lethal. Yeah. So, you know, this is an RNA virus. And and so I know we've talked about this before. Mm -hmm. Dr. A just mentioned a little bit. It's going to naturally mutate that when, when, when the virus is, is making new virus RNA uh, usually like with, with our cells, they have what's called proofreading activity. And so when they read something and, and they they want to make a copy of it, they make an exact copy. I mean, it's not exactly that, but close enough. Whereas with RNA, with the RNA viruses, when they're making their, their other strand RNA, they're, they're making mistakes all the time. And, and the vast majority of the, when that happens, the, the virus is just, it's toast. It's going to go. Um, it's not functional anymore, but once in a while you get a mutation that either doesn't matter, which is probably most of these mutations that you're talking about. Right. Or it could make it a little bit more fit. Maybe you get more virus, maybe uh, from an infected cell. Maybe like you said, it's more transmissible. I mean, it really doesn't want to so be more a- virulent. Mm-hmm. That's not what the, this virus doesn't want to be more virulent. It'd rather not kill somebody. It'd rather be able to reinfect that person later. So since it's new to us. So do you think the reason for a lot of these changes and what spurred on this, these rapid accumulation of changes in the last year, I think one prevailing theory is the fact that maybe it was being carried by an immunocompromised individual with a weaker immune system, which led to that person or that individual having to fight the virus constantly, having prolonged infections, you get recurrent replication of the virus and you're having is that, that. Is that, is that like a theory out there? Yeah. Or? I didn't hear that, but I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't buy that, that second. I would think in an immunocompromised person, they're going to either get treatment or they're going to unfortunately pass yeah. from the virus. Yeah. I don't think, I don't need to see somebody with a, a long-term chronic infection. My guess is the reason you see these mutations is because it's gone through our population like wildfire. Right. Nobody had it. So think about the flu. The number of flu cases aren't quite the same because we all had the flu or, or the vaccine. So we have some sort of antibody response here. Yeah. Nobody had it. So it just went so quickly. You have, think about the number of virions made, the number of viruses made total out of all the people infected has to be astronomical. Right. And yeah, so and there was just so many made so quickly that you had some strains with mutations that, that didn't kill off that vi- virus strain. And there was no natural immunity whatsoever, even like cross protective. Right. Uh, so I, I think that was part of the problem, but mm-hmm. uh, I, think I read that in an evolutionary biology article somewhere just as one possibility sure. carried by an immunocompromised individual. Yeah, I, I just, cause I have a hard time believing that I see person isn't going to succumb mm-hmm. or, or, or the fact, I mean, it, it doesn't have to replicate many times in an immunocompromised individual, right? It, because it is spreading, it's doing that replication somewhere else. I mean, it, it, right. It was going to happen. Okay. Yeah. So yeah, my, my thought is just there's a sheer number of times you've seen a new virus replicate because there's just so many more people getting infected. It's it's allowed those mutations to be introduced. The, the influenza virus does the same exact thing. I mean, it has another weapon besides that, but, you know, it still has poor proofreading activity. So it can undergo the same sort of ideas here. So do you think the danger of this kind of this variant, the B117, the UK variant, do you think a potential danger lies in the fact that if it hits a country that is already currently being overwhelmed by COVID-19, that it's we might get that overwhelming effect that spurred the lockdown about a year ago? It might overwhelm with so many new cases. You really don't believe that. I mean, I, I think, think it, so. I think it will become the dominant strain, uh, a variant. It will become the dominant variant in a population, right? Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you saw, there was an article that came out a few days ago that said that the UK variant has been or had been in the US since November. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, 
And, you know, I know we've shut down all travel from South Africa. Like the virus is not going to find another way. Here. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right. Oh. right. Yeah. That, that, I mean, that's, that to me, that's it's, just silly. It's going right? to get here. Yeah. I mean, you, you can ban like, all the flights from South Africa you want. It's going to go from South Africa it, to Nigeria, Nigeria to the U.S. You know? Yeah, it, it's going to find a way. But think of it like this, too. Um, you know, you remember that avian influenza? Remember that one, the bird flu? Yeah, yeah, where we were all freaking out. You we know, had mass and, and, hysteria for a while. <laughs> yeah, we were all going to die, right? And it, it, and and it, we it is much more virulent than the flu, like much more. But it's only true. Still, only get, uh, people get it from birds. It, it didn't really hit the human population, and we don't transmit it to each other. We're at, but it's very, very virulent. So right. if you did get right. it you were more likely to die as opposed to remember the H1N1 when that came out, Chris, mm-hmm. the, the novel flu, uh, the, mm. the swine flew out of Mexico in 2010. Uh-huh. That was easily transmitted between people, yeah. but it wasn't as virulent. Right. We, we had right. Mi- millions, tens of millions mm-hmm. of cases in the U S on, on it was, the, uh, it was a pandemic. Thousand, yeah. A few thousand deaths. Right. Right. Remember it was a pandemic. So why didn't we shut down? Well, it wasn't to the degree it wasn't, it wasn't novel in that it was a flu variant. Right. And so uh, there was still some cross protection, but it, it didn't have, it, it, it had a population that was immune to it. Most yeah. of us that probably yeah. got it were, were safe, but you know, Think of it that way. That's the same way with the SARS. And it's going to keep mutating. We're going to have it here. Eventually, I believe that we'll all have cross-protection to this strain. It'll just be another strain out there that's going to cause the cold and once in a while a little more severe disease, like the four variants we have. We just have to get used to it as a population, unfortunately. I agree. I agree. And uh, like I said, I I think it's here to stay. It's uh, maybe likely that the vaccine will become a yearly thing, uh, just like you would with the with the I hope flu. Not. <laughs> it's hard enough to get people vaccinated for the flu every year, right? I, I don't mean, think I- so. I I honestly, the more I've been thinking about it, I mean, there's a possibility, sure, but I, I think it depends on how different these strains are going to be eventually well we'll see right we'll see variants variants (laughs) right now the variants are very different because it's still new to our population but once once we hit herd immunity those variants like if there's enough cross protection against those variants it's going to be a hard time for those specific variants to find enough non-immune people right to cause another outbreak so, so yeah, maybe, maybe it'll be embers we'll rather see. than fires. I, uh, <laughs> that's the hope. I mean, yeah, but the embers. Yeah, I'd rather have embers than fires. I yeah. agree with you, hundred percent. I agree with you. But, well, we'll you know, see what we, happens. We gotta get to that. We gotta get to that herd immunity first. I mean, that's that's a struggle so far. But right? We don't know but, what that entails yet with this virus. We we don't have an actual number. We have guesses. Yeah, I mean, what do you think that magic number is? In my mind, 80 percent more. Well, they're predicting right now, based on current estimates, that wouldn't happen until, what, 2022, potentially, with the well, current vaccination rates. Well, so far, well, I mean, if you count the number, so we've had, what, 10, 11 million vaccinated so far in the U.S., and documented positive cases are about 27 million or so, right? So maybe we're at about 30, no, 40 or so, 45, 50 million but yeah. we we all think that the number of positive cases is higher than the documented case positivity PCR positive, right? Well, asymptomatic cases, yes. Yeah. So if if we have twenty seven actual positive test positive cases, we think what, what twice as much non. Oh, more than that. Yeah. Rick, yeah. You're, absolutely. You're, yeah. Yeah. Rick, you're I mean, a guest. You can chime in anytime. Any, anytime you want, man. <laughs> I don't know. They, they can see that, you know, so you might as well just chime in. Yeah. I didn't. Well, great. They're going to see me run around herding cats. Um, so I guess my, you guys were just talking about, um, you know, how long the immunity lasts. So I don't know what you guys had, but like the news today actually said, possible a yearly vaccine i don't know what you guys had heard and i was like oh i'm gonna talk with these guys tonight maybe maybe they can kind of extrapolate and then like the most previous one i read was you know this suspected what five-year immunity something like that um so i mean five years would be great yeah yeah 
So I mean, the, I know when they extrapolated based on the the, the antibody How about response, permanent? They, that would be good. <laughs> yeah. right? So hey, once one thing I'll say is I've been wrong before on this show, specifically about we all COVID. Have. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I, I'm really I'm really hopeful that you know what we're going to see with these variants is that uh, is that we will get enough cross protection. And my guess is probably seventy five percent. That's because this is actually a very infectious virus. It is. Right. It's not as lethal even as the flu in some uh, in some yearly outbreaks, but um, it, it is definitely, I think, more infectious, not like measles, but you're up there. So I'm going to go with you. Seventy five to 80 percent of the population needs to be vaccinated or, or just immune from having had it. Right. And that's going to take a while to get there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, if if we go back to trying to crunch those numbers, right? If so, if we have around thirty million case positive, documented cases, based on asymptomatic and those people that just don't bother going to get tested, you know, we think that number is at least twice as much, right? So there's probably at 60, least. 60 million people out there in the U.S. with naturally acquired antibodies. I'm, I'm thinking more than right? that. I'm thinking like five times as many. Like seriously, that many people. Well, five times as many I kids, mean, th- then, then we're getting close to uh, 50% of our population. I know. I already but you having know antibodies. unless you inject them with, or, you know, <laughs> give it to them. We're, again, we can't do that. So. Right, right, right. You know, yeah, unless you so, want to do I mean, antibody responses and yeah, in yeah. everybody. My, 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 my uh, uh, I, I guess my point behind the sort of the numbers is that sure we have maybe around 10 or so million vaccinated so far but i think our immune number is upwards of 60 70 million hope you're right i i hope so too because that gets us to me too that gets us to (laughs) herd immunity much much faster yes it does yeah so i hope so rick what what's has there been any uh talk about not hoarding with within sort of the medical community, not hoarding that second dose. So right now the schedule is, and I'm sure you know, but what we'll talk about for our listeners, you get the first dose and then depending on which vaccine, three to four weeks later, you get that second dose. And right now there are a lot of doses sitting in freezers uh, because they're being held for that second dose for uh, people who have gotten their first dose. But some people have started saying, why don't we just get as many first doses as possible into arms? The CDC has come out with an adjusted schedule saying that for your second dose, instead of, say, four weeks after for Moderna, you can get it up to six weeks after if you sort of miss it at that four-week window, right? So allowing a bit leeway there. Has the... Have doctors or hospitals, medical community talked about maybe pushing out more first doses? It's definitely come up. In our community, we are not hoarding them at all. Um, We're also, you know, the allotment as far as vaccine is based on how you use them. So as long as you're using them, you're going to get more. Um, So we've been using them, so we know we're getting more. Now, that being said, we're also not scheduling vaccines we don't have. So we, we're not scheduling a thousand people a day if we're not getting a thousand vaccines a day. So we, we have that knowledge of how many vaccines we have. Um, so I personally don't understand hoarding them. I'd rather see, you know, 10 million people vaccinated one time around as opposed to five. And then, you know, you have 5 million vaccines sitting around just waiting to be used for three weeks. Um, I, I like that. If you don't use it, you lose it policy mm-hmm. there. That's, that's a good one. That, I mean, that's really going to stop people from award. It. Uh, I agree. That's that, a, that is a it, good it one. definitely led to um, like, uh, at least in North Carolina, there was like smaller communities that didn't have plans to distribute the vaccines. And they said, all right, you, you're not getting them because we need them, you know, by Raleigh or we need them by Charlotte because we need sure. millions of people. So they, they actually had lost some of their, their vaccines based on not using them. So. Do you think there could be a better way of rolling this out in terms of delivery to these rural areas? Do you think, you know, we've talked about this not sometimes on this show, sometimes privately in our offices, where I don't know something like the uh, the army or the national guard or is is there a is there a better way to d- deliver these things? 
you got the answer. Let us know. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think everybody has an answer. I don't know who has the right answer. I really don't. Um, you know, I've brought up the questions many many times. Um, you know, we, we can't have them in, in primary care offices. Um, you know, because of the freezer. Well, but you know, the, the Moderna, that's pretty much a regular freezer should go down to that in just about any office. Um, but I guess there's some logistics as far as who is allowed, um, documentation, um, you know, so there's other red tape, red tape. Exactly. Is that because of the emergency use authorization? I think it's part of it. Okay. Um, Yeah. Because I mean, there's different rules to like regular FDA approval versus EUA. And then it would have taken a lot longer to get those two things out. (laughs) If we were waiting, we'd still be waiting probably. Oh yeah, I'm 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 glad they did an EUA for it for sure. Yeah, you are because you got vaccinated. <laughs> I only have Very one true. dose. <laughs> well, one dose. make sure they use it because you know if you don't use it, you lose it. That's all I've learned. Uh, okay, well, so uh, cool. in terms of vaccines, uh, more vaccine news came out this week in terms of uh, this time documented, you know, because. Uh, the Sputnik five vaccine the the Russians made if you know a few months ago they had claimed a certain percentage and everybody around the world was like, "Well, show us the data <laughs> and uh this week uh, or last week, the data came out, and they're at ninety one point six uh efficacy rate which which is pretty good i think uh, i mean when when we were when this was being developed a year ago, I think we were all hoping for fifty percent or more so yeah, that's true, we were <laughs> yeah. We were like, you might as well get it if it's 50%. Right, right. Even those uh, AstraZeneca, you know, at 70 some percent, mm-hmm. Johnson and Johnson, depending on the dosage, I guess, 70 some percent as well. Uh, those are pretty good numbers. Yeah. Okay. Any Anything else you guys want to add about uh, vaccines or variants? No. We just had a pretty good summary on this. Yeah. I, yeah I'm tired of COVID. We, we'll we give you two weeks off and we'll have a brand new episode of COVID just for you in two weeks, Dr. Keller. <laughs> okay. So um, on to our game segment, unless there's anything to add by anyone. I'm nothing. No. All right. So on to the game segment. Uh, who wants so, to do the recap for last time? Because that was uh a fizz one. Wasn't that one of the father's physiology fun, fun facts fun for Friday or whatever the app is? Yeah, we don't have yeah, a and fun. It's actually, it's, it's hey, pretty great that with we actually facts. have. Not at all. I agree with Dr. Lorenzo. And it's <laughs> great that we have Dr. Lorenzo here because he was one of the few. Uh, we had a few MMS students, right, who also responded in with yep. the correct answer. Um, and basically the case scenario was an overwhelmed doctor in the ER has a patient suddenly fall unconscious and go into a supraventricular tachycardia, no time for meds, drug treatment, or use of other equipment for resuscitation. The physician quickly dumps ice into water in a basin and submerges the patient's head for several seconds. Patient suddenly regains consciousness, confused as to why he is so dang wet. So basically the question was, what specific kind of uh, physiological mechanism or reflex or maneuver has been elicited in this patient? And uh, Dr. Lorenzo, we, we have you on here. Would you like to uh, answer the question on the spot? That would great. It would put me on the spot. Uh, that would be the mammalian diving reflex. So yep. that's uh, our body's way to kind of conserve the heat and blood flow. So when we get exposed to cold environments, we shunt blood to the vital organs and away from the extremities. It's also the reason why if you find somebody floating in the wonderful frozen lake of Erie, you got to warm them up to calm dead. Well, hey, put. Th- exactly. Well, well put indeed. We'll, we'll get some more awards. See, I'm reading, I'm reading what you wrote here. Uh, we'll, we'll talk more about human feces and knives. Don't worry. That was, Oh yeah. That was, that. Uh, that deserves at least two more episodes. I think. Well, it, listen, I mean, it says this, I'm a little disappointed that you didn't have more zingers about the study involving knives made from frozen human feces. Merry Christmas, Rick Lorenzo. <laughs> so nothing talks about Merry Christmas, like knives made from human poop. So the winner for this uh, riddle episode for the correct answer is Jawad Atwe. 
Uh, Joe Congratulations, Joe Absolutely. That's and right. MMS we, student, right? Uh, MMS, think, yeah, student. MMS student. Absolutely. And I do uh, believe Jawad's interested in a certain learning pathway too. So keep up the good work, Jawad. Absolutely. And uh, please email thebiobusters at gmail.com with an address uh, so we can send you your gift, which is a BioBusters mug. All right. New gifts. New gifts. gifts. Yeah, we have new gifts. It's right. called merch. Merch. Yeah, merch. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Uh, so right. this week's riddle. Uh, okay, back to back to something more relevant, and that's microbiology. So. <laughs> we have a 35-year-old male who presented to an emergency department in the southern United States with intermittent diarrhea and vomiting of three months duration. Otherwise, the patient's in good health, normal vital signs, normal, no fever, uh, normal heart and lung sounds. But he does describe to the doctor what he felt were zigzagging blisters in his mouth. Now, these lesions have been occurring for the past seven months and would last for several days at a time before going away on their own. The patient had brought a long, thin object with him in a jar. He said he had used a needle to dig out the filamentous object from his mouth. The ER referred him to the infectious disease specialist with a presumptive diagnosis of delusional parasitosis. The ID doctor, though, noticed in his mouth the zigzagging lesions in his buccal mucosa, and one was removed with tweezers, and they were actually identified as a worm that specifically invades the mouth. And so this, this, this episode's question is, what is this worm? And how is it transmitted? Fantastic. Very good. You got to love for Dr. Uh, a because it says cool right under that. I didn't write cool. So. <laughs> yeah, I know that. It's a, uh, it's a, uh, it's a tough one. It's uh, not, not. Google a com- will be your friend. Yeah, Google not, will be your friend. Yeah, not a common one. Not a common one. But you got to love those patients that come in with, hey, this came out of my body. <laughs> That's exactly what bag. happened here. <laughs> and so, so I was, I was telling. Oh, I think Dr. Cardi about it. She's like, how do you actually get that? When I told her, uh, she's like, who would do that? Well, it happens. Oh, yeah, it does. It does. It does. Anyway, okay. I, can't, I can't give more, more away than that yet. So No, we don't want to So if you away. know the answer, please uh, please send us an email at uh, thebiobustersgmail.com. Absolutely. Or if you just want to say hi to Rick or... Or anybody else on the uh, the BioBusters team, say uh, drop us a line at thebiobusters at gmail dot com, or uh, suggest uh, episode topics. Uh, we, we promise, uh, although we do this every time, we promise we'll be more on top of it and have more episodes. But it uh, it took us a while to get back to this one. So. Well, this is our first episode, as you see, uh, with video, and it took us a long time to get this to work. Absolutely. So hopefully, it will be a smooth sailing going forward. So, yeah, those of you listening to our podcast on sort of your regular device, in addition to doing that, we're still going to keep posting them as audios only. But in addition to that, you can find us on YouTube now. Uh, we have, we'll have our own channel. I'll put it in the uh, show notes and uh, you can see videos of this as well. Great. Right. That, is, that is excellent news. Okay, uh, so that'll do it. We will uh, leave the emails till next time. Any uh, final words? Uh, I will say if if we get uh, some people to smash that like button and, and, uh, and follow us, that would be right. great. I promise that Dr. A will continue to reach out to Dr. Fauci to see if he will <laughs> be a guest on the show. Well, you know, the first time I tried, they told me he was too busy but you know we'll try again just a little <laughs> we'll try again i saw him he he did an episode the other day with these uh what are the name of these the try guys do you know the try guys from like buzzfeed no mm, no so they were like famous maybe i don't know five years ago six years ago and it's i don't know four or five dudes that just try weird things and put them on video and they got famous from that, like, oh, him trying this weird food or, you know, X, Y, Z. And then he, he does a video with the Try Guys. And 
by all means, I'm all about, you know, ouchie Fauci doing, you know, going out there, you know, promoting vaccines and, but Hey, you know, we, 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 we have room for guests as well. So I will email his office again and, uh, They'll probably only tell if, me he's only if our listeners again. Uh, follow us and smash that like button. That's right. That's Good right. idea. <laughs> All right. So that's our uh, show for today. Uh, you can email us at thebiobusters uh, at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes. And now you can find us on, uh, you will be able to find us on YouTube and hopefully on Daily Motion as well. And stay uh, tuned for merchandise. And stay tuned for merchandise. Absolutely. Now we have mugs. We'll have more things. And, uh, I'm uh, Dr. A. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Delbert. Uh, Chris Fawner is at Fawner916. Chris Keller uh, still refuses to catch up with the I have a Twitter account. I just don't use it. (laughs) (laughs) And I see uh, Rick uh, shaking his head sideways. I I, I take it not on Twitter? Uh, I have a Twitter account, but I don't use it at all. (laughs) All right, Rick. (laughs) We'll leave that out of the episode then. All right. Well, thank you uh, all. Thank you, Rick. And uh, hopefully we'll be in touch soon. All right. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Absolutely.